I'm really so glad we decided to do this with, uh, and that I get another chance to come back and and talk to you some more. And I just realized, uh, just in the last five minutes, just walking out and coming back in, how much mudita, uh, how much uh, pleasure I have looking at all of you on retreat. I think, whoa, this is great, all of these people on retreat. And I was thinking also that uh, that uh, mudita is really terrific when it's completely wholehearted, when there's no yearning in one's mind for a little bit of that for me, um, which I'm happy to tell you I didn't have, and probably because I'm going to sit for a month in March. And I thought about that, how delighted I was for you, like you're the coming attractions for my month. And I was just enjoying you so much and thinking about I'm going to be sitting in March for a month. Donald is sitting that month for as well. Two other friends of mine are sitting that whole month. Probably when I come on retreat, I'll find that many people are actually people that I know sitting on retreat. So I was just thrilled for you to be in this community of sitters here. So it's just a, it's a lovely feeling when you just have a, just a delight, unalloyed with any neediness. That's really, I think, that's uh, uh, a desirable state. I hope I have that. I remember, I think it was, I think it was Maureen Stewart who... Uh, it might be somebody else, but uh, somebody who was a sage and a Dharma teacher who uh, and a Zen teacher, and the Zen tradition has the habit or the, the tradition of, if you can, you save up your most pithy remark for your final breath. So somebody, somebody in there, and I think it was Maureen, I could be wrong, but somebody as sage as she said... Thank you very much. I have no complaints. And I thought that's a marvelous exit line. I would like to, I not only would like to say that while I was dying, I'd like to say it while I was living. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. That would be really, if I had actually really profound understanding, I think that's what I'd think. And I would be filled with nothing but gratitude for having gotten up another day and get to live another day and see another sunrise and another full moon and another whatever is happening, another Super Bowl, another playoff, another another what it is ever that's interesting in the world. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, equanimity because I, I have a feeling very much that it's so important to keep linking goodwill and compassion, which is certainly a form of goodwill under uh, more dire circumstances or troubling circumstances, or uh, mudita, which is under another kind of circumstances, so important to see them as uh, these sublime states. Divine abodes is the Pali word for them. My friend Sharon calls them great places for the mind to live. You know, that's what a divine abode is. It's a great place to live. Uh, where the mind can only live there with appreciation fully if it's not needing and with compassion because it's not frightened and with just universal goodwill because it's aware and alert and wise and knows that everybody's in the same boat. So I thought I... Uh, well, I wanted to read uh, the other day when I was talking... I said, oh, there was this great line from the Anapanaka, and I'm going to say it wrong, so now I brought it, so I say it right. 
<clears throat> talking about the mind that's filled with uh, insight and wisdom, he, and therefore uh, manifesting with goodwill. He says, protecting oneself, one protects others. And protecting others, one protects oneself. And I think that's the whole play of this. As we care for others, we feel ourselves to be healed. And we, we, we even just as we're here by ourselves, so we're caring for others just in our mind, never mind when we get out in our world and we care for others with our goodwill and our love, which counts tremendously. But protecting others, we protect ourselves. Protecting ourselves, we protect others. So I thought I'd read you a little bit from the Anapanika, uh, from one of my most favorite books. I always think of uh, Nyanapanika as, uh, uh, I think I've adopted him as my spiritual grandfather. I think because uh, Nyanapanika died probably about 10 years ago now, maybe maybe a little bit more. and he he was quite old. He was in his middle late nineties. He was born in Germany. He was a German Jew, who um, I'm very touched by the fact that in his biographies it says that he got very interested in Buddhism when he was a university student. He was the only child and uh, very very interested in Buddhism and really wanted to study it and really thinking about going to a Buddhist country so he could study it and immerse himself more fully in it. And uh, then his father died. So he decided because it was, he just didn't want to leave his mother alone because he cared about her too much, so he stayed with her. And then the times in Germany got very bad, and he arranged for both of them to be able to emigrate. He went to Sri Lanka, and then he arranged for her to come as well. And then by and by, he uh, he took robes. He became the uh, eventually the uh, editor of the Buddhist Publication Society. His mother studied Dharma. I just find it a lovely and touching story. And they both lived old. And uh, so I think of him as being, in some ways, I've adopted him, maybe because we have the same Middle European Jewish background. So here is Nyanaponika talking about equanimity. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. Looking at the world around us and looking into our own heart, we see clearly how difficult it is to attain and maintain, maintain balance of mind. Looking into life, we notice how it continually moves between contrasts, rise and fall, success and failure, loss and gain, honor and blame, We feel how our heart responds to all this with happiness and sorrow, delight and despair, disappointment and satisfaction, hope and fear. These waves of emotion carry us up and fling us down. No longer do we find rest than we are in the power of a new wave again. How can we expect to get a footing on the crest of the waves? How shall we erect the building of our lives in the midst of this ever-restless ocean of existence, if not on the island of equanimity? I love reading the Anapanika. It's really beautiful to me. That particular uh, image of uh, uh, the unshakable wisdom on the island of equanimity, I always have a visual image that I associate with the stories of the Buddha under the 
tree on the night of his enlightenment. And the story about that night is that as he sat down and said, I'm sitting here until I become uh, uh, fully understanding of the causes and the end of human suffering, that he was besieged with, as it's told in the story, all the frightening images of uh, of uh, being attacked and uh, erotic images that might beguile his mind into lust. And he sits with unshakable uh, determination. In the, in the story, it says he puts his hand out on the ground and says, I have a right to be here. And I love that story. Sometimes I tell people when I sit, I sometimes sit down and say, I'm not getting up until... All confusion has gone from my mind. And sometimes when I tell that to people, they laugh, like, really? Um, I don't see anything wrong with doing that. Why not? Why not have confidence in yourself? Why not say that? I mean, if it doesn't happen, you're not going to sit there forever. You know, it's not, a, it, it, it's, it, you know, it's not like subscribing to something. But why not? Uh, Heather was mentioning that she spoke the other day about overcoming doubt. You say, let's do it. Forward. Get a grip. Sit down. Every, the Buddha did it. He was a person. You can do it. So that I was happy to read you that uh, part from the Anapanika. Really, uh, there's a way in which I think of uh, that taking refuge in the wisdom is taking refuge in your own good heart that one's own benevolent heart ultimately is the source of that kind of equanimity. In the story about the Buddha sitting there and here he is besieged with uh, tantalizing images and frightening images, the way he dispels the images is he sits there and they say that uh, such an invisible shield, such a field of goodwill surrounded him that as all these beguiling or frightening images assailed him, they were dispelled as they encountered his shield of protectiveness. It's as if he put up a protective shield around him of his benevolence and nothing could get through. Actually, it says in some of the um, descriptions that as Mara threw her spears and uh, swords at the Buddha, that when they hit this field of benevolence, they turned into flowers and fell on the ground around him. So I love that image, that we are protected by our own benevolence. And Donald reminded me this afternoon that there's a, a link in the chain of dependent origination which says that goodwill, goodwill, maintaining goodwill in the mind is a cause for the arising of concentration. Did I get that right? Uh, transcendental dependent. No, no, but the, what's the cause of the what? <laughs> it's goodwill that protects you. Goodwill that protects you. And protects your concentration, which in my mind protects your steadiness, which allows you to have all kinds of things happen and keep on uh, and keep going. Heather was telling about saying, uh, to say something encouraging to yourself, like I love you to yourself, and keep going. Those kinds of uh, fortitude. Uh, you can do this.
I'm just realizing that maybe I keep linking Nyanapanaka with somehow he's my grandfather because Nyanapanaka is talking about having a view of how the vicissitudes of life, what could happen to you, this and that and up and down and despair and joy. My own grandfather, also of Middle European Jewish ancestry, but not so learned at all as Nyanapanaka, used to say his one line of wisdom, which I remember from my childhood quite well, was always preceded with a great long breath in and out. And he'd say, it's very hard to be a person. (laughs) It's very hard to be a person. Because all of these things happen to you, and you can't do anything about it. But goodwill is the proximal cause of concentration, steadiness. And think about equanimity. It's different from tranquility and it's different from calm. It's not, it's not a steadiness that never moves. It's the mind's ability to regain its balance. But I think we keep continually getting startled by things. Actually, sometimes I think about the whole of practice is learning, the, learning to habituating the mind to recuperating itself when it's been startled. We get startled by things that frighten us and the mind contracts. We get startled by things that uh, uh, ignite a lust in us and that we feel uncomfortable and the mind contracts. That everything that happens that we didn't exactly want to have happen that startled us in some way we're we're startleable animals. We have a nervous system. You probably noticed a difference in yourself from the first day that you were here until now, that in the beginning, somebody bangs the door and you jump, or somebody drops a plate in the dining room and you jump. And by the fifth or the sixth or the seventh day of a retreat, you don't jump so much. Do you notice that difference in yourself? Like, calm down a little bit. Even a thought comes into your mind that, ah, I wish I didn't think about that. As it comes later on in the retreat and there's more and more steadiness in the mind, you say, oh, phooey, there's that thought again. Okay, I can manage that. It's really the mind not getting so startled by things and being able to recuperate itself once it gets startled. I... uh, I was talking to my colleagues earlier just this afternoon. I said, oh, did I ever tell you the story about And they said, no, you never told that. I said, well, it's an old story, but I'll tell it, as long as they didn't hear it, because it's a good equanimity story. And I figured out that this event happened in November of 1987. So this is an old story. Normally I have a rule, no old stories, but it's an old story. (laughs) And I happen to know it was November because it was the uh, Thanksgiving retreat that we used to teach at Santa Sabina. And um, it was the day that the retreat was supposed to start and I was packing to go. And my youngest daughter, um, then in her mid-twenties, arrived at my house and said, Oh, uh, you're packing. I thought that you and Dad would like to uh, take uh, me and Johan, her husband, out to dinner tonight. I said, well, I'd really like to do that, but I'm about to leave on the retreat. Really? You don't want to take us to dinner tonight? I said, no, no, I do want to take you to dinner tonight, but I can't do it because, you see, I have this retreat coming up. 
really? Are you sure you're going to take us to dinner tonight? It's positive I don't want to go to dinner. She said, you don't want to celebrate the fact that you're going to have a grandchild? So I became hysterical, hysterical. Oh, jumping up and down beside myself. Seriously, jumping up and down, waving my arms, hysterical. Phone rings. I pick up my, the phone, because you know, in those days you picked up a phone. It was plugged in. <laughs> I remember I pick up the phone. It's my friend Alta. She said, hello, Sylvia. I said, Alta, I'll call you back. I'm hysterical. And I hung up. <laughs> and by and by, after a lot of hugging and crying and carrying on, I pulled myself together. And I congratulated everybody. And I went and taught the retreat because it was the right thing to do. And I love that story because I used to teach that mindful meant everything. You could be mindfully sad, mindfully worried, mindfully this, mindfully that, aware of whatever came up. But I used to say you can't be mindfully hysterical. (laughs) But you can actually be mindfully hysterical. If you got a little bit of you that's out here that says, I'll call you back later, (laughs) currently hysterical. But I see myself being that. You know, not everything gets pulled together quite so fast. If someone had told me catastrophic news at that point, I probably would have despaired terribly and gotten someone else to go to go teach for me that night. That the mind doesn't recover from a big swing the other way quite so fast as it does from a big swing into delight and uh, uh, exuberance. Actually, uh, I'm sure you did the uh, near enemies to the four Brahma Viharas. Must have mentioned that the the near enemy, the near enemy of mudita, in the text is exuberance, and I used to have a lot of trouble with that because it sounded to me like exuberance is nice, you know, like what could be bad about exuberance. And I was recently in a group, and doesn't matter where and who was in it. But somebody in that group who was sharing uh, his life at this point and what was going on actually was talking on at some length about the tremendous good fortune in his life in a certain area. And he really, I mean, it was wonderful. And I rejoiced from him and so did everybody else. And after a while, he apologized. He said, you know, I feel like I am not being sensitive to the fact that everybody in this room is not in this place, and maybe that's enough of me. Now we'll go to somebody else. So I just really didn't feel good about myself at this point. It was fine. Everybody wanted to give him that space. It was the same as my hanging up on my friend and saying I'm hysterical. But really, you could, I could see how in exuberance... I could tell you a story about that too, but it takes too long. Uh, no, seriously, the, I can tell it short. Coming out of the opera... <laughs> No, no, it's not. It's not fair. It's not fair to tell half a story. It's just not fair. It's a bad. It's a bad pedagogical technique to tell half a story. At the end of an opera in San Francisco, where everyone was beside themselves, hysterical with joy because whatever it was, the final curtain on the Ring of the Nibelung or Pavarotti singing Aida or whatever it was. People were beside themselves, millions of curtain calls, everybody exuberant. And by the time I got down and I got my car out of the garage, 
there was two cars that had leaving the garage had crashed into each other, and people in full, you know, opera, all dressed up, dressy clothes were out, anguished looks, dealing with crashed up cars. And I thought to myself, first of all, these are probably some of the people who ten minutes ago were hysterical with joy, and now they probably rode out a little bit too hysterical and exuberant and rode into each other, and now they're having a bad time there. So, but I th- and I thought how fast the moods can crash. So it, it, it's a problem. But <laughs> fundamentally, the main point to make is. Remember the other day I told the story about um, Mr. Jones of the auto parts store saying, well, it's okay, this is Buffalo, that that particular insight about this is the way it is in a life. People get born, people die, people crash their cars, people do fantastic, people are amazing, people are amazingly compassionate, people are amazingly trustworthy, in terms of showing up with compassion and being able to take care of each, each other. The world is amazing. This moon comes up in the same exact place where it's supposed to come up with Jupiter. You know, that's that big, bright, looks like a star right on top of it. Exactly the same. There are so many reasons for... Just the mind is tremendously amazing in its capacity to feel all kinds of things and to do it with a certain amount of steadiness, and to know these things happen. This is my favorite thing to read as an example of everything happens because of everything else that happens. I I used to not... I feel like I understand the meaning of karma much, much more clearly now than I certainly did as a young person. In uh, This is from a book called It Is All About the Bike. In April of 1815, the Indonesian volcano Mount Tambora erupted and continued to do so for three months. An estimated 90,000 people died. It remains the biggest eruption in recorded history. Millions of tons of volcanic ash were blasted into the Earth's upper atmosphere, forming an aerosol veil that shut out solar radiation across Europe and North America. The sun disappeared, rainfall increased, the average temperature fell several degrees. It's probably the most dramatic incidence of global cooling the world has ever known. The social ramifications were immense. In New England, there were blizzards in July. Many farmers were wiped out, prompting both a rapid settlement of New York and expansion into the Midwest, in Ireland, 65,000 people, people starved to death. In England, there were food riots and dramatic colors of dust-laden sunsets inspired a young landscape artist, J.M.W. Turner. Byron wrote his poem, Darkness. In Switzerland, the endless winter moved the 18-year-old Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. In 1815, known as the year without a summer, The harvest failed across the Western world. The role of the price of oats was something like the price of oil today. In southern Germany, true famine prevailed, according to the historian Karl von Clausewitz. There, farmers who could no longer afford oats to feed their horses shot them. An eccentric German aristocrat, 
Baron Karl von Dreis de Sauerbrunn, a former student of mathematics at Heidelberg University and an inventor, witnessed the slaughter. Without horsepower, society faced an even greater crisis. Inspired by necessity, Dreis realized a dream as old as mankind. He conceived a mechanical horse with wheels. The Dreis machine was invented in 1817. It was the first prototype bicycle. It was known as a lauf machine, a running machine. It comprised two wooden carriage wheels in line, a wooden bench which the rider straddled, and an elementary steering system. You didn't pedal. You propelled it by scooting or paddling your feet along the ground, traveling downhill or at speed. You lifted both feet off the ground. It was original. No one had previously put a pair of wheels in line on a frame and made use of the fundamental precept of the bicycle, balanced by steering. It was thought that without your feet on the ground, you'd fall over. The Dracine machine taught humanity that you can balance on two wheels in line if and only if you can steer. It goes on to say that the big unanswered questions, one of the big unanswered questions in the history of the bicycle is why, when technology had made it feasible for at least 3,500 years, did it take so long to invent it? And goes on to talk about the necessary and sufficient conditions happen, that something happens out of it. I like to read that because when I see Turner landscapes that are so beautiful, and you think those beautiful, really amazing, how many of you have seen this? Turner's, it's, they're amazing. The, who could have imagined that light? So he needed to be there and see that kind of light. Or Frankenstein, or the poem Darkness, or the, the expansion into the Midwest. Things happen and other things happen. And some of them are dire, and some of them are terrible, and some of them give birth to amazing new things. And you don't know. All you know is everything gives birth to something else, something else happens. And things happen by circumstance. I remember my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, saying, it's a lawful cosmos. Things happen because other things happen, because the wind blew that way at that point. Who knows how the winds are blowing now? We think a lot about Fukushima, what that means for everybody in this world. And who's there and who's not there? I always think about the fact that uh, my cousin Yuri was on the beach in Phuket on the afternoon of the tidal wave, the tsunami. And uh, he and his girlfriend had left four hours before the wave and were on a train going to Bangkok when the wave hit. But they could have been there. Four hours later, they would have been there. A lot of people were there. It wasn't from anything personally that they did or didn't do or any kind of... It wasn't personal who was there or not there. It was just the necessary... That that was who happened to be there then. Don't you think about that when you see an earthquake happen and you see a piece of a bridge fall and you think somebody just rode over that bridge one second before that piece of the bridge fell. It didn't have anything to do with whether they were better or worse people. Just a piece of bridge fell. It's a very extraordinary world where things happen because other things happen. And mostly 
we have very minor control in our lives. I, I always was very interested in people who say, I'm the kind of person who likes to be in control of everything. I think we're not in control of anything except maybe what I eat for supper if I make it till then, you know. But, um, but it's moment to moment being in control, not really. And with that, it, you know, we can either get frightened by that, sometimes in my life I have, or I can just think it's awesome, it's amazing that we are here today or anybody's anywhere, anytime, is such a result of cosmic coming together. You know, I think, if I think about gratitude, I am very grateful to the cosmos that I'm still here and that you're all here and we're all here because we weren't on such bridges or under the trees that fell or the tidal waves that waved or that we're here and it could have been otherwise. It's so amazing. It's for, for me, it's such an engenderer of gratitude and waking up and don't mess up today. Maybe, since I'd like for us to really sit a little bit. I want to say one more thing about uh, what we're doing here in this particular practice of really cultivating wisdom. Sometimes, it took me a long time, or it took me some time, to realize that metta practice was actually wisdom practice. That as I discovered that my mind could, in fact, keep itself, develop so much um, balance in it that I could see my life and all the things that happened to it and all the things that arose in it is they couldn't be otherwise. They couldn't be otherwise. I think one of the great errors of thinking, oh, this would be good to tell you, I have a new practice this year. I tried to take the word should out of my vocabulary. If I'm teaching and I say, just as an example, I say, I suddenly have the thought I should have called my Aunt Miriam. I'd stop and I think, wait a minute, what I meant is I wish I had called my Aunt Miriam or so-and-so, he should have returned my phone call. And what I really mean is I wish he had returned my phone call. It didn't happen. But first of all, it spares me the, the feeling that I did something wrong. I should have and I didn't. So I don't takes away that guilt out of it. I meant to, it just didn't happen. It's like the conditions didn't come together. And whoever didn't call me back or send the letter or send the email or whatever, it should have come. They said the FedEx is going to come, but it didn't come. So it just didn't come. What I mean is I wish it had come, but it didn't. It's not its time to come. The mind relaxes when you think should have, then there's something wrong. It didn't happen yet. All the causes of it happening. Things happen when it's time for them to happen. It just makes things easier. It shouldn't be this way is a mistake. You know, it is this way. You know, um, A woman named Gwen once said, when people say to me, how are you, Gwen? She said, I don't say I'm fine. I say I couldn't be better because I couldn't be. <laughs> because we can't ever be. Because if I could, I would. Even when I'm, <laughs> even when I, even when I'm, a, if I'm in a really a crummy mood and I'm not being nice with my nearest and dearest, not doing it purposely. If I could be better, I would. And when I remember that, I, I realize that there are no villains in this world. People who do terrible things, they can't do other things. 
It's not their fault. It's their parents or their circumstances or their genes or their neurology or something. But it's very helpful in keeping my mind clear of villains to remember that there are none. They're just circumstances. So I want to just read you a little bit of Billy Collins. That's one of the things I've really come to understand in this limited time that I think we each of us have here in this life, that what's for me important to know is when my mind falls out of steadiness and remembering whatever wisdom it knows, and I suffer, I don't feel right about it, that one of the ways of, the way, the principal way, to immediately return it to clarity is to spend a moment of mindful attention. So this is Billy Collins. And it's called Ignorance. It's only a cold, cloud-hooded weekday in the middle of winter, but I'm sitting up in my body like a man riding an elephant, draped with a carpet of red and gold, his turban askew, singing a song about the return of the cranes. And I am inside my own head like a tiny humunculus, a creature so excited over his naked existence that he scurries all day from one eye socket to the other just to see what scenes are unfolding before me, what streets, what pastures. And to think that just hours ago I was as sour as Samuel Johnson with a few bad cherries in him, quarreling in the corner of the rat and parrot, full of scorn for the impertinence of men, the inconstancy of women, and to think further that I have no idea what might have uplifted me. Unless it was when I first opened the front door to look at the sky so extensive and burdened with snow, or was it this morning when I walked along the reservoir? Was it when the dog scared up some ducks off the water and I stopped to watch them flapping low over the frozen surface and I counted them in flight, all seven, the leader and the six, hurrying behind? I love that. I have no idea, he said, what made it go away. But there are two minutes, moments, of in that moment I paid attention. When you go out tonight, after it's dark, and you look up, it's not a full moon anymore, it's a wee bit past it. But it's amazing. It's shaved off a little bit, just like that. I, I, I really, I, I was, it's usually a figure of speech when you say, I can't tell you how many. But I seriously can't tell you how many times I have exited this room with my mind in less than a great place and looked up and seen the moon and felt better. Because there it is, in its regular astounding place, hanging in the sky, doing its thing. And for a moment, the mind forgets its story. And in the forgetting the story, it's just wide open. The uh, Tibetans like to say, all hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. Your mind is not clenched over stuff. Everything flies out of it, and you're just alive in that moment. So let's sit wisely for 10 minutes. What would be the right practice for this? Let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease. And then just rest. Anything that arises that disturbs a natural peace, meet it with goodwill, 
with warmth, with steadiness, with curiosity, maybe even with good wishes.
Larry was going to say something. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sylvia, as always, for coming and hope that you will come over and over again. We've heard that in many of our interviews, so I just wanted to say that for the group. Um, and to... Um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.